Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about access to beaches, what Governor Jerry Brown has been doing, signing, vetoing, you know, those things that he's supposed to be doing. And we'll be going into a little bit of detail of uh, catching up on what happened with Public Bank LA and some other things going on. I'll be back here every Friday morning on the Knock Patreon. Thanks for your continued support. Please encourage your friends to chip in a couple of bucks to help to keep all of this going. Every dollar really does help. But I'm here in the studio with Bushido Squirrel. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing all right, man. You know, it's a it's been a long week. Uh, I, I think we're going to have a fun talk. We got court cases and ballot initiatives and all sorts of stuff going on. So let's start with the beaches. Uh, well, the Supreme Court has decided not to hear a case which would have potentially infringed upon your access to beaches. So on Monday this week, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case that is critical for the future of our access to the beaches here in California. To add some more spice to the appeal, the California Association of Realtors and their National Association both urged the Supreme Court to hear the case, claiming that, quote, this violation of the takings clause will encourage the California Coastal Commission to impose similar unconstitutional controls over the large number of properties located along the California coast and will also encourage similar restrictions on landowners by other government agencies throughout the United States, end quote. Frankly, to me, that sounds kind of like a good thing. Well, and also, the California Realtors Association is just making themselves out to be a huge villain this election cycle. They're the ones that are behind a no on Prop 10, which is obviously trying to stop rent control. They're also going for yes on 5, which is just like a massive tax break for wealthy homeowners. So they're not making a lot of friends in the community. Uh, Or the friends that they're making are all very old and rich. Yeah, the billionaires. (laughs) People who can own beachfront property. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of which... Uh, this is all about a, uh, a billionaire's beachfront property. So um, their decision to turn away this case means that the ap- appellate court's decision stands regarding the decision that stemmed from a dispute over a locked gate between the road and Martins Beach in San Mateo County, which is just south of San Francisco and pretty much due west from Palo Alto, renowned the world over as the home of Silicon Valley billionaires. Quote, this story is much more about the coercion than about getting access, something they don't have a right to. End quote. Vinod Kosla is the one who said that he is a co-founder of Sun Microsystems. He said that in an interview back in 2014 about this case. So this has been going on for a number of years. Because right to access beaches is guaranteed, so you have wealthy people who put up false barriers, false signs, ways to scare away the public from being able to access a beach which is publicly accessible. Yeah, so technically the California Coastal Act demands maximum possible access to the shoreline, and at the very least, wet sand and open water are owned by each and every one of us here in California, even where those beaches abut private land. So curtailing access by locking the gate was in violation of the California Coastal Act. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, there is a dirt road um, down to a small parking lot on this property, and the gate that controls the only land access to that road and subsequently Martins Beach is all on uh, Mr. Mr. Kosla's property. So for the first two years that he owned the property, he continued to allow access down the road just as the previous owner had done. Um, But he did raise the fee to park there, claiming that he was losing money in the venture and that as a property owner, he was entitled to not be forced to run this commercial enterprise at a loss. Um, So he jacked up the right to park there. I, I like how the option of just letting people park at the beach for free just didn't occur to him. Yeah, well, I mean, his claim was that he was having to pay for the maintenance of, like, the parking lot and the road and preventing the erosion. But he's a billionaire, and he bought 
40 acres of land right next to the ocean. So, Well, it's like one thing I like to point out when we talk about billionaires, because I don't think people really understand the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. Like, a million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. The amount of wealth this guy is working with is astronomical. Yeah, and and he doesn't even live on the property. Guillotines. Guillotines. Okay, so he claims that San Mateo County officials sent him a letter stating that he could only charge $2 per car for parking. So rather than dealing with all that, he just locked the gate, uh, denying access to the beach. Um, Basically, when he did that, uh, he was, like I said, he was in violation of the California Coastal Act. Um, and now following the refusal of the Supreme Court to hear the case, the appellate ruling stands. So Costa must apply for a permit before he can change public access to the beach. So that's what this really all came out of. The entire lawsuit that made it almost all the way to the Supreme Court all came out of a simple refusal by Costa, a billionaire, to seek a permit because he viewed it as an infringement on his property rights, property rights even, to be forced to do so. Now that the appeal is dead, he is, go figure, applying for the permit. That's kind of amazing because, like, he could have just fixed this by applying for the permit in the first place. Yeah, no, he instead chose to drag it out as far as he could, even going so far as to hire, like, one of the most expensive, like, Supreme Court specializing attorneys he could find. Yeah, I I was going to say the cost of litigation here would dwarf his losses for, like, allowing free parking. Like, that's an amazing mathematical equation that he fucked up. And and so this whole thing is, like, he was trying to, like, establish himself as, like, this green... Uh, green energy focused, civic minded billionaire, philanthropist. He's promising half of his uh, wealth will be donated to charities when he dies. Like, all this stuff. And then what everyone is going to know him that is paying attention is like he's going to be known for being the dude that locked the gate because he's a dick. Well, I also like the fact that like when it comes to the Buffett pledge, which is what like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and other mm-hmm. people have done, their pledge is 90% of their wealth when they die. Oh, I no, think he was just doing half. Yeah, Bill Gates is like I'm giving away <laughs> 99% of it because my kids will literally not need more than 1% of my wealth to survive in yeah. any rational world and this guy's like praise me for giving away half and it's like dude, richer guys are giving away far more. You need to step it up. Yeah, so anyway, according to the LA Times at this point Quote, the state has also created an account that can be used to gather donations to appraise, acquire, and maintain a public access to the beach. The State Lands Commission has suggested a public route operated like a park with daily dawn to dusk hours of operation, trash bins, and portable toilets. How exactly the commission would acquire this land is still being determined, end quote. Mm, eminent domain? Well... I mean, I'm inclined to say yes, yeah. but uh, I'm not really sure what their their thoughts are on this one. I mean, it, it's from what I understand, effectively, this access is, should be treated as like an easement, yeah, which means that it is kind of like an eminent domain thing. And I mean, there's there's no reason why he couldn't have just been like, I don't want to pay for this anymore. So if you guys want to keep using access, like it's up to the California Department of Parks to fix it and make it handy. Well, and what we just me out even more is if you own a home in the city of Los Angeles and you're just like a working class family, you're responsible for fixing the sidewalk in front of your house if it's broken. Like you can't, you can go to the city and apply for like some relief, but ultimately that easement is your responsibility, even though it's publicly accessible and you don't own it. It seems like, I don't know, the same rationale should apply to a billionaire who's trying to stop people from going to the beach. <laughs> You know, yeah, if we well, can if we can take a grandma's home here in L.A. because her sidewalk's cracked by a tree that she didn't plant, I don't know. Don't have a lot of sympathy for the dude. Yeah, get out of here with your logic. 
Ha! So not only do we have a billionaire running for governor right now in the form of John Cox, we also have billionaires just like behaving badly in general. And like we've seen this fight played out before in Malibu and other places. Hopefully the, the you know decision from the appellate court means that we will see less of this. Uh, but let's move on to other people that are malcontented with uh, City <laughs> Hall. Uh, this is going to be like the third week we're talking about this because this keeps dragging on and on and on. Well, so let's talk about cutting down on a disruptive protest at City Hall. Yeah, well, uh, brace yourself because this is not going to be the last last week either. Um, so on Tuesday, I, I actually went and attended the meeting and uh, unfortunately was not able to stick around and give comment, but uh, they apparently curtailed comment anyway. So the council had two agenda items relating to this rule change on Tuesday morning. Um, one of those two agenda items was a, simply a continuation of the agenda item from last week. Uh, the second one was the same, it looked like. It was basically the exact same content but worded slightly differently and it had more line breaks um but substantively it was the same stuff so on this one from what i understand uh la can uh a few of the a few of the folks who showed up from la can were allowed to speak and give public comment um but the period was limited and the discussion was once again kicked to next week so that's the third time they've done that from what I saw from uh, PM Beers, who was uh, recording the whole thing, uh, public comment during this period was limited to one minute, which is significantly shorter than it should be. Uh, and people were pretty much, you know, held to their one minute and yelled at if anybody applauded or clapped or, like, made any show of, like, support. It was kind of the same thing we've seen in previous meetings about this. I mean, most of the, any time that I've shown up and it's been something that was contentious, they always limited us to a minute. But yeah. your, your point is still well made. And it sounds like most of the council is leaning towards yes. People that might be possible knows, like Mike Bonin, are being really cagey about it. Um, I kind of understand that at the same time. It's kind of scary to see the city council able to circle the wagons around this issue because this could be weaponized very easily. Absolutely. So uh, the real thing here is that um, if you're listening to this and this is something that you care about and we hope that you do, uh, please come out to City Hall next Tuesday. Uh, the, me- the meeting session will begin at 10 a.m. in room 304. You just go in through the main entrance on Spring Street or sorry, on Main Street and uh, you know go through the metal detector, tell the cops at the door that you're going to the room 304 they look at your license, they give you a sticker, and you head on up. Uh, this is, you know, this is very important because we need to be voicing our support for the right of the public to air their grievances in council, council sessions and in committee meetings. We should be able to offer our dissent without facing draconian repercussions like being banned from the council chambers and from committee rooms for, for days on end. And as a you know, gentle reminder on this one, if so, the rules really were breaking down of saying like, if you get kicked out. That day, you can't go to any more meetings. If you get kicked out again the next day, uh, you then can't go to any meetings for three days. And then at the end of that three-day period, if you get kicked out again, then you get a six-day ban. And it basically just once you're on that six-day ban, if you get kicked out the next time that you come back in, uh, you are going to be banned again for another six days. And it just keeps on going. So this is really like a, a massive overreach in terms of the rules enforcement just to deal with some gadflies. Yeah. And it's also we've seen with uh, Melina Abdullah and Black Lives Matter activists that like their presence at places like police commission, city hall and committee meetings is kind of not wanted by the people in power. So it's not hard to see how this could easily 
be turned against like bigger movements and used to silence like really prominent voices outside of like the nutcases that really like are problematic. Uh, but they, we've got to figure out a way to weigh between it. And, you know, at the end of the day, maybe accepting a couple of crackpots is the price for like free speech. It's not ideal, but nothing about free speech has ever been not messy. Absolutely. So uh, let's move on to uh, Governor Brown. His uh, signing hand was moving fast and furious and threw up some surprises. Like we've had uh, his his last day to decide whether to pocket veto or sign uh, assembly bills and Senate bills uh, had a lot of happenings. So uh, break it down for us. Yeah. So this was actually his last time that he's going to get to sign any legislation in the state of California as governor. California. (laughs) So um, basically on on Sunday night, September 30th, that was the deadline for Jerry Brown to sign veto or just ignore legislation that made it through both the state assembly and the Senate uh, in the in the past year worth of sessions. Um, If he if he opted not to sign the legislation, it was still going to go into effect. It just uh, would basically, from what I can understand, uh, be a stressful situation for anyone who cared about that legislation, waiting to to see what he did. But he kind of just did that for everything that he signed in those last two days of the month anyway. So it was he he was not being very friendly to people who were uh trying to push for their legislation to get through yeah well and it's also like we got some really big wins like let's start off with the 1421 because this one like the fact that he signed it was surprising before the assembly voted on this uh the police union came out and basically bribed uh senators and assembly members with 4400 dollars contributions to their campaigns black lives matter like called them on it a lot of those contributions were returned. A lot of those votes flipped to yes on 1421. So there was a lot of lobbying, not just on getting this passed, but getting Governor Brown to sign it. Because, like, I called his office every single day for two weeks and sent them an email every single day for two weeks. And I know the staffers were sick of hearing from me. I don't care. He signed the bill. So this law concerns the confidentiality surrounding police records, specifically those officers who are accused of misconduct and of improper use of force. So for a very quick history lesson on this, in 1978, Governor Jerry Brown, yes, the same one, he's been doing this forever. He signed a bill that enacted these police protections in the first place, though the impact of that bill has, though the impact that that bill has had over these last 40 years is likely far in excess of what Brown and the legislature had intended back in 1978. During the intervening decades, the courts repeatedly extended those protections to the point where it provided a near blackout on all information related to misconduct or use of force allegations and made it next to impossible to get any information about such issues outside of the discovery phase of a lawsuit. Previous attempts to overturn these protections for officers were met with strong opposition from, you guessed it, the police unions across the state. SB 1421 passed, at least in part, because it doesn't really go all that far into repealing these protections. Um, and definitely doesn't go as far as previous bills that were intended to do that. According to the LA Times, SB 1421, quote, does require disclosure under the Public Records Act of every report of an officer discharging a firearm and every use of force that results in death or great bodily injury. It grants public access to information about officers on duty sexual assaults against members of the public or exchanges of leniency or other favors for sex and dishonesty in police reports, investigations, and prosecutions, end quote. So Peter Bribring, uh, who is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU of Southern California, told the New York Times that, quote, this is transformative for California. 
A community can't hold its police department accountable for its handling of shootings or dishonesty by officers if investigations and disciplinary actions are kept secret. Too often, officers can act with impunity. These police shootings happen because our laws allow them to and because of our standards around use of force. End quote. So, yeah, we're looking at an incredibly, like, transformative law that's happening. There's been, like, some people, like, kind of poo-pooing this and wondering, like, is this going to change stuff? You know, SB 54 was a big win. It hasn't changed too much. 1421 is different. Prosecutions are coming. Prosecutions of cops are coming. Things are going to change, and this is really going to matter. Now, we move on to— Not, not here in L.A. until we get rid no, 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 no. E- even without Jackie Lacey's okay. movement, like it, civilians and other people can look into police record laws. There's going to be changes like there's going to be huge changes and civil litigations and things are really going to change. It's going to take a minute or, 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 or you know, a little uh, a couple of years, but things are going to be way different. California's super secret police laws are finally changing. This really is a big win, but we have to be the ones that weaponize this and motivate motivate our elected officials and elected leaders to actually implement this. Now, the next one we're going to talk about was also controversial. We weren't sure if Barron was going to sign it or not. And as soon as he signed it, the Trump administration and every major ISP announced they were suing the fuck out of California. Yep. So um, the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, everyone's favorite um, weird music video star. His gigantic coffee cup is so stupid. I just I I like a lot of coffee, but like a reasonable size cup. I I, I was genuinely like laughing very hard when I saw uh, John Oliver make so much fun of him by getting an even bigger, more ridiculous Reese's (laughs) peanut butter cup mug. Um, so, yeah, that was fun. Anyway, so Ajit Pai authorized the rollback of Obama-era net neutrality laws during the first year of Trump's administration. That repeal went into effect on April 23, 2018, so just a few months back. Senator Scott Weiner introduced SB 822 on January 3rd of this year in anticipation of the FCC repeal. Senator Kevin DeLeon also introduced SB 460 at the same time, though his bill was eventually rolled into 822 in an effort to better fend off attacks from the big ISPs. SB 822 was often referred to within internet freedom advocacy circles as the, quote, gold standard of net neutrality protections. No, but California, like in cafe standards, our net neutrality standards matter because our uh, economy and our market is so big, it affects the rest of the country. Absolutely. I mean, that's the the whole thing with the the automobile uh, emissions stuff where... Basically, we drive what the national emission standards are because everybody makes their cars so they can just sell them here. Yep, exactly. So on June 20th, um, that's where the drama started. One of our local assembly members, Miguel Santiago, who lives in Boyle Heights and represents Assembly District 53, uh, drew the ire of everyone who is online because the Electronic Frontier Foundation Foundation and other uh, internet freedom advocates around the city, the state, the country... uh, all caught wind of what he was doing and pounced upon it and made sure he knew that he had been caught. Um, So basically, he and the communications committee that he chairs, uh, as Gizmoda reported, quote, eviscerated the text of SB 822. Gutting amendments to the bill were disclosed by the committee after 10 p.m. on Tuesday and were voted on moments after Wednesday's hearing began with no debate, end quote. 
So those amendments changed the nature of the bill so much that at the time, Senator Weiner, uh, who authored the bill, so he's, again, Scott Weiner is the one who authored SB 822, he demanded that his name be taken off of the bill because it had changed so much in terms of what it was actually going to be able to accomplish that he was like, this is not my bill anymore. Take my name off of it. So there's actually was a bunch of very contentious arguments going on between Santiago and Scott Weiner, which if you want to hear... Um, legislators uh arguing it, it's kind of fun it's it, it sounds like a slap fight like i'm not gonna <laughs> lie i don't see this as being like you know uh, ali versus frazier <laughs> that's fair um anyway so then um by the end of august uh senator weiner and assembly member santiago and others had managed to work together to restore the consumer protections that santiago and his committee had removed from the legislation in june basically everybody was calling him out for having taken a bunch of money from at&t uh, and other ISPs, as well as uh, being there for like a ribbon cutting ceremony for a quarter million dollar donation that AT&T made to a nonprofit in Boyle Heights. So uh, apparently, I think it was like $38,000 was the contribution that they wow. had made to him over the course of his his campaign or his, his career, rather. And it's, it was like 27000 the year before, something like that. It, it My point is that it was less than 50 grand, and that's what it costs to... Um, buy off Santiago, apparently. Yeah, no, I mean, assembly members are, you know, cheap on the scale of legislators. You know, if you if you set it at a sliding scale, California assembly members, like, they're, they're pricier than, like, maybe, you know, like, Montana state legislatures, but they're ah. not quite congressman level. Or city council level. Yeah, this is true. So, uh, anyway, the bill then sat on Jerry Brown's desk since September 11th, uh, when it was approved finally with its new reinstalled teeth. Um, and basically, the waiting game has been getting under the skins of everyone who is actually concerned about this, which is literally everyone in the country who cares about net neutrality was looking at this and wondering what's going to happen. And uh, lots of people were saying to were pushing for for uh, folks who are concerned about this to call Jerry Brown, and that's been happening for like the last couple of weeks because there was suddenly a lot of concern that he might not sign it, or even worse, he might just veto it. Um, so he kept everybody waiting and waiting and waiting, and then at the last moment, in true Hollywood, California style, signed it into law. And then, as you pointed out, the Trump administration immediately, within a couple of hours, sued the crap out of California. Yeah. Well, and this one puts, like, Republicans in a kind of weird spot because one of their big arguments about the net neutrality regulations at the FCC level uh, before Agit Pai was that, oh, you know, these regulations don't count as federal government laws, which should, under the Supremacy Clause, overwrite state laws. Uh, now they're arguing the opposite because they're in charge. But it's really a weird one where for the last eight years, they've literally been saying FCC regulations don't really matter that much, that much and you would need to change ISPs to a Title I uh, utility in order to like mm-hmm. enforce this. Now they're going the exact opposite way and trying to say, oh, no, FCC regulations are the end-all, be-all. But yeah, basically the the Republicans and their FCC now is trying to argue the opposite of what they're arguing under Obama, which is pretty par for the course from what I can tell. Yeah, it really comes down to the fact that the Republicans only genuinely care about states' rights when it comes to taking away the rights of individuals and get really freaked out when people in states like California assert states' rights in terms of you know limiting the capacity of 
uh, large corporations to just do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, it, it, it's also pretty helpful that you know these large corporations that will directly benefit from this are housed here and can throw lots of money at Jerry Brown uh, in his new private career and all of his allies who are going to be coming up through state government. So this was a win for Jerry Brown on a number of levels. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see it litigated, and the big question is, will we actually get net neutrality here? Because I can see an injunction coming down the road from a federal yeah. judge. So, I mean, the, the really interesting thing on this is that we've got like Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, or whatever on one side of the equation. And we have Google and Facebook and every and Amazon and whoever else with all of their weight thrown on the other side of it because it's, it, it's simply a matter of their livelihood when it comes to uh, continuing to exist in the space of the internet. Well, and it's one also where like AT&T and Verizon especially have been buying into media production companies, especially new media companies like the company I used to work for, which exists primarily on YouTube and like it's 80% a subsidiary of Verizon. They're buying up their own verticals for delivery. They're not worried about Verizon like customers not being able to see media on the internet. They just want to make sure that you can only access it through their services, that you're beholden to their ecosystem, that you're tethered to their products. So this is actually a really scary thing because they're only going to fund media that they agree with. They're only going to fund media that they like. So, you know, revolutionary leftist stuff, stuff that says corporations are bad, it's going to have a lot harder time finding a place and monetizing itself on the internet. Absolutely. This really just brings to mind that existential comic that was making its way around the internet uh, over the last week talking about you know, people. Everybody understands that when it's the state media, it's easily controllable by uh, you know the people in power, the oligarchs. Yeah. But when you look at a capitalist media, it's controlled by the billionaires instead. So, take your pick. You end up with the same results. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so those are the two wins we got. Now we got to cover some losses and some losses that are like really shady losses and weird decisions on on Brown's part. So let's start off with SB 1449. This one was not super well known. It has been around for a little while, and it concerns uh, the testing of, of untested rape kits. Correct. And so this one is, it's... It's definitely there. There will. It's in conjunction with something that is positive, but at the same time, it definitely leaves you with a nasty taste in your mouth at the end of it. Um, so this bill, which was passed unanimously, again unanimously through both the Senate and the Assembly, and again with every single committee vote. When you look at, if you look at like the, if you Google uh, legal info and you Google uh, the SB fourteen forty nine, you can look at all of this information and the history on this bill is every single time it was put up to a vote and those votes were recorded uh, in our state's legislative process record keeping system. Every single time it was recorded, there was nobody voting against this because why would you ever want to go on the record of voting against the testing of rape kits? So um, (laughs) that being said, it was then vetoed by Governor Brown on September 30th and is currently waiting a decision by the Senate to consider a vote to override his veto or to bring it back in next session, which would have a different governor. Uh, this bill would ha- would have, and no longer will unless they override it, uh, would require that all rape kits be sent to a lab for testing within 20 days of being booked into evidence and then be tested within 120 days by those labs. Uh, another bill which was aimed at understanding what the scope of the state's backlog of these untested rape kits is. So what AB 3118 does is it calls for a statewide audit of all of the untested sexual assault evidence kits that are currently in the possession of law enforcement agencies or of testing labs and to report certain data from those uh, kits back to the Department of Justice by no longer no later than July 1st of 2019. And then it also calls for 
the Department of Justice to prepare a report on that audit and present it to the legislature by July 1st of 2020. So in his veto memo for SB 1449, Governor Brown voiced support for what the bill is trying to do, but argues that the audit of AB 3118 should be conducted before a bill like SB 1449 is passed to better understand the scope of the problem. He also noted that the state did budget seven and a half million dollars to test rape kits this year, and an, uh, one billion of or one million, sorry, one million of that will be going to starting the audit, and six and a half million will be going to begin testing the backlogged rape kits. Um, in a statement regarding the veto, Mariska, oh boy, Mariska Haggerty. Okay, thank you. Is wait, is that the actress from SVU? I have. That would be weird. That is the actress's name from SVU. Wow. Um, so, okay. In, <laughs> in a statement regarding the veto, Mariska Haggerty, founder of the Joyful Heart Foundation, said that, quote, this action sends a message to survivors that they must continue to rely on the discretion of local law enforcement to test their kits, rather than a statewide mandate. We know this doesn't work in California. The failure to mandate the testing of all newly collected rape kits means California's backlog will continue to grow, and justice for survivors in California will continue to depend on where they live and who they know, end quote. So this is, this one is dark. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, it's weird when a state that, that spends as much, uh, it spends as much as it does on policing, can't spend that on forensic science that's like actually good. We know our drug labs are basically just science cops who are turning around the results that like cops and prosecutors want. Rape kits, sexual assault, much harder to get prosecuted, uh, way more important to our communities. Yeah, and there, there's, um, again... And, and also, yes, it, it is Mariska Haggerty. It is the actress from Law & Order SVU. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So apparently her career on that show led her to a role in activism surrounding similar topics, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, one thing to sort of like tie this into Kavanaugh national politics, uh, Rachel Mitchell, the prosecutor from my home county of Maricopa, Arizona, kind of came to prominence because it turned out that Sheriff Joe Arpaio had not been testing rape kits for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department. She was brought in to audit the kits, decide if prosecution should be brought. Of 400 kits, 19 trials went to, or 19 cases went to trial. That's it. Uh, we see this as a national epidemic. Yeah, same things happening in Detroit. Same things happening across the country. You know, we spend a lot of money on like Bearcats for police departments for uh, assault rifles and body armor and SWAT and riot gear for them. Yeah, actually protecting victims of sexual violence. Uh, yeah, not something we really, really do. Um, and it's it's frustrating to see Brown throw up kind of these weird. Uh, objections and be like, oh, you know, maybe try it again next year. It's like, dude, you had the chance to sign this. Now. I mean, his his big thing really is that he's still trying to go for that like reformed. I'm a fiscal conservative, yeah, perspective, which is weird. Triangulation. I mean, he's retiring. He's old. He's done. Why is he trying to like save this fiscal conservative? Like, do the right thing and get this shit handled. Oh, you know, he's not leaving. He's gonna stick around as a consultant <laughs> and an advisor and like a lobbyist. And he's he's gonna want people to think that he's the smart guy in the room. Uh, part of that is uh, going to be easier because people will be a heck of a lot sober or more sober <laughs> uh, because we don't get to keep our bars open till 4 a.m. Let's well, talk. Well done on the segue there. Yeah, let's talk about SB 905. Yeah, so SB 905 is titled the Late Night Bar Bill. So this bill would have authorized a five-year trial study period in which five cities would have been allowed to adjust their last call times to 4 a.m. 
So the cities that would have participated in the study, which would have been Los Angeles, Long Beach, West Hollywood, Palm Springs, Oakland, and San Francisco, all were active supporters of the legislation and volunteered for those roles because they wanted to do that and they wanted the business and they wanted to, you know, act more like a real big city. Well, and also, like, we're adults and these are private businesses and it's really, really kind of dumb that, like, the government gets to tell me when I have to stop having fun. Yeah, and apparently, like, they don't seem to mind having everyone bum-rush the bar at 1.30 when it's last call and buy, like, three drinks, which I think is technically illegal to do, and then just, like, pound those in the last 20 minutes before they get kicked out of the streets so that that's right when the booze is really hitting in and everybody is suddenly getting much more drunk much more suddenly and people's frustrations about, like, who they were trying to talk to during the night, everything comes to a boil, and then you get fights and people getting into cars thinking that they're more sober than they are, and it uh, leads to bad things happening. But Governor Brown caved, in the end, to pressure from the California Highway Patrol and vetoed the bill on September 28th. Uh, In a note to the Senate, Governor Brown said that, quote, without question, those two extra hours will result in more drinking. That's the point. The businesses and cities in support of this bill see that as a good source of revenue. The California Highway Patrol, however, strongly believes that this increased drinking will lead to more drunk driving. And quote, I don't know where they're getting that from because every study or discussion on this that I've like read about has not gotten to that conclusion. Well, and it's one where like when you look at European nations or you look at New York that has like a famous 4 a.m. last yeah. call time. Yeah, like in Ireland, like you, the bars, like some of the pubs, they don't really close until the owner decides they really want to and then come like 6 a.m. Unless it's not unless it's a Sunday, you can pretty much walk in there and drink. And the thing is, there's A, better ways to move around without cars, B, public transportation, and C, we could be developing those options. We're Absolutely. not doing that. You know, the fact that California Highway Patrol just acknowledges, well, you have no way to get home from the bar because we don't have robust, robust transportation. Uh, I don't know, fix that. <laughs> but also like all of the places that they said, hey, you can drink later are all urban centers. None of these are like out in the hinterlands where you have to drive. These are like LA and Long Beach. There's a train from LA to Long Beach. Like I could drink until 4 a.m. in Long Beach and get home to my place in LA just by taking trains. Absolutely. Ah, so, this is frustrating. Well, what's what's fun with this one is that it's coming back, baby. Ha! So this was not the first time that Scott Weiner, uh, again, he he mentioned he's like mentioned prominently in this podcast today because he's got his name all over like all sorts of bills that made a big splash one way or another. He's going to be making moves for governor, I guarantee. Um, and it, like I got to say, he's got some not bad ideas. SB eight twenty two and you know uh, nine oh five, obviously good things. Uh, eight twenty seven, not not, not so a good. good thing, terrible thing. <laughs> so it's funny because I actually had a really interesting discussion at a coffee shop um, a few months back with some guys from San Francisco who were visiting here. And when I started talking about 827 with them, this was actually many months back now that I think about it, um, 827 was still alive and well. And when I mentioned Scott Wiener, they both just had this look of horror on their faces. So I don't think that the locals who have been dealing with him for a number of years really have uh, all that good of an opinion about him. But... We'll see, see. That's the fun thing when you move for like it, when you go to a higher office and Garcetti's figured this out is the locals don't have to like you. You're aiming at a bigger <laughs> audience. So like True. if Scott Wiener wants to become like a U.S. senator, San Francisco doesn't necessarily need to be his base of support. He's got a whole other state that he can that trick. True. So uh, anyway, like I said, this was not the first time that Scott Wiener had introduced this type of legislation uh, aimed at extending the last call. 
but it was the first time that it made it all the way to governor's desk. Uh, he did also release a statement following the veto and then posted it to Twitter because that's what everybody does these days. And on Twitter, he said, quote, while I'm disappointed, we aren't giving up. Cities should be able to decide locally what nightlife makes sense for their communities. I'll reintroduce the bill again in 2019. Third time's a charm. He is kind of <laughs> lame. I'm not going to lie. I like the bar thing, but like he's a little bit of a nerd, I think. Uh, he's a huge nerd, but whatever. I, I am a nerd, so that works for me. Yeah, so uh, so we're moving on from uh, the nightlife to controlled substances and specifically safe injection sites um, and things that have been initiatives in other countries, specifically in Scandinavian countries and Portugal and other European countries that are trying to tackle their drug abuse ep- epidemics. Let's talk about what's going on here. Sure. So this was uh, AB186, which was the Controlled Substances Overdose Prevention Program. Um, The bill would have allowed cities and counties around the state to launch safe injection site programs. San Francisco in particular had been moving forward with the launch of a three-year pilot program that included a mock-up of what a room in such a center would look like in the city's Tenderloin neighborhood, which is... Uh, or was at least uh, still up and available to you know be seen as a demonstration um, last month. I don't know if it's still around. Probably not anymore, but that's okay. So basically, what these centers are is that they're these clean, safe environments where heroin and other intravenous drug addicts can get off of the street and uh, shoot up safely. They've been shown to be effective at fighting the public health crisis of drug overdoses, limiting the spread of infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis C, and at reducing the number of used needles that end up on the streets. And the used needles is one of those things that rich people in neighborhoods where they're seeing homelessness for the first time, that's one of their most frequent complaints is that they find used needles in parks and in other areas. And it's like, guys, if you don't let people have a clean needle exchange, this stuff happens. Well, and it's like with Mike Pence, he helped kick off an HIV epidemic oh, in yeah. Indiana by stopping uh, safe sites for injections, stopping uh, people who were uh, using heroin and other uh, intravenous drugs from being able to seek help, and then also cutting down on STD testing. HIV in Indiana went from like fairly controlled to a literal epidemic in the span of about nine months. Like because it was he had insane. To prey on it. Yeah, no, it was crazy. And so, like, we see that stuff happening, and it's like we know how to treat drug addiction and drug abuse, and it's through community and through safe medical practices. This isn't a really hard equation. We figured this out. We just need to implement it. Yeah, and they've shown it many times in places around the world, as we'll go into. So uh, the San Francisco program would have opened supervised injection centers where intravenous drug users could more safely use these substances that they're addicted to under the watch of medical professionals. While the program would be the first legally sanctioned program of its kind in the United States, many cities and states uh, across the country are looking into considering similar, or rather there many cities and states across the country are considering similar measures in the face of the mounting death toll of the opioid crisis. Supporters of these proposed facilities cite the success of similar programs in cities like Vancouver and Sydney and nationwide programs in Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands. The bill was, of course, strongly opposed by the Trump administration, of course. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, even penned an op-ed in the New York Times pointing out that, quote, federal law clearly prohibits injection sites. Cities and counties should expect the Department of Justice to meet the opening of any injection site with swift and aggressive action. And this is just literally part of the war on drugs that is making it impossible for cities and local like uh, authorities to deal with what Absolutely. is a public health crisis, not a criminal issue. And the feds are just intimidating everyone into not dealing with stuff in safe and effective ways. And it's really, 
it, it makes me want to throttle a Fed. Well, so here's a, here's a nice story to uh, hopefully temper temper that uh, that fury of yours. <laughs> so, despite this illegality, opioid activists have actually been operating an quote unquote underground safe injection site for a number of years. And as the publication of a Forbes article on the topic from August 10th, 2017, which I'd recommend reading if you're interested in this, workers at the facility have been, quote, serving patients in an undisclosed urban area for nearly three years. So this started back in 2014, and they had been doing it for three years by the time this article was published. According to that article, more than 90% of drug users who used the site reported that they would otherwise have been injecting in a parking lot, street, public restroom, or park, while 67% said that they would have disposed of their equipment unsafely if not for the site. As a result, the site is responsible for having averted an estimated 2,300 instances of public injection and 1,725 cases of public syringe disposal by those 100 users users in a two-year period. Yeah, right. So according to the, I'm going to keep going with some stats here. According to a 2017 report from the College of Family Physicians of Canada, uh, best evidence from the from cohort and modeling studies suggests that SIS, which is a safe injection site, uh, are associated with lower overdose mortality, 88 fewer overdose deaths per 100,000 person years, 67% fewer ambulance calls for treating overdoses, and a decrease in HIV infections. Other studies have shown that these sites dramatically improve the rate of safe needle disposal, much like clean needle exchanges programs that do exist in this country. So, despite the demonstrated effectiveness of these supervised injection sites in cities around the world, Governor Brown dismissed the idea outright, claiming that, quote, enabling illegal and destructive drug use will never work, end quote, and vetoed the bill on September 28th. Yeah, I mean, except for all the evidence that we have from, as you've mentioned, countries like Portugal. And I, I got to say, to tell a personal anecdote real quick, when I was younger and basically homeless and diabetic and needed syringes for my insulin... I would go to the Venice Needle Exchange on occasion, and they weren't there to serve me, but they helped me out. Like, these sites and these communities serve more than just people who are, like, unsol- or unsavable drug addicts, Like, and we need to do away with that vision of people who use drugs. It's not about uh, moral failings. It's about public health, and it's about the fact that we haven't provided people with a community, so they seek being high to make up for the fact that they feel worthless and alone and left behind by everyone else. And Governor Brown painting drug users as people who are not worthy of compassion and as just criminals uh, is pretty pretty disgusting, especially for you know a guy who was once considered Governor Moonbeam. Yeah. No, he's come a long way. He's very much a neolib at this point, like straight up. I wonder if that has anything to do with all the money he made. I just <laughs> I'll have to. Somebody should look into that. Yeah. One. So one one quick point that's worth making with this is that Portugal actually has a different system in place where they've actually created a nat- national health service that is dedicated toward dealing with uh, opioids and other uh, addictive substances. And they... They've actually gone out there and they completely decriminalized everything, which is a huge first step. And once they decriminalized everything, they started doing public health outreach and education and getting people the, you know, the treatment that they need to be able to, to kick the habit and go on to lead productive, happier lives where they can be a part of the society and be able to enjoy the benefits of being in a community. So like there, I, I was reading about how, um, the in, in Lisbon in, in Portugal, they actually have like three trucks that run around to different areas of the city and stop at like these 
10 or 15 different sites throughout the course of the day and hand out little cups with methadone in them. So they've got your like five milligrams of methadone per day, which is your daily, uh, you know, amount that you need to be able to uh, quash the uh, the desire and then the the physical need to get the heroin without actually providing you with the high that you would get from shooting up. It just satiates the craving. So they go out there with these trucks and people from all walks of life just line up, get their pills, and go on about their day. And it's it's amazing. They've gone from having like Lisbon used to have these massive amounts of seedy areas where people yeah. just wouldn't go and it's completely changed. And all that they the, like what they did was they're just like, well, this this thing that we've been doing for all of these decades is not working. Maybe we should try something different. And they looked into their hearts and they saw compassion and they decided to stop their war on drugs and instead treat it as a public health crisis, which is what it is. Yeah, now there's a, the the criminalization of drug users and people who you know use substances and use them a little bit too much mm-hmm. uh, really needs to stop and is filling our prisons to a really scary extent Absolutely. and also just like killing people. Like remember our our opioid outreach in this country is very attractive. Pharma reps going to doctors and offering them cruises if they you know prescribe more Percocet or more oxycodone oh, yeah. or uh, more oxycontin, and that's where the opioid crisis really came from from here in the states and is now but by the fact that like Afghanistan's opium production higher than it's ever been in history like literally uh, we invaded Afghanistan and part of our rationale behind that was the Taliban sells drugs to make money will make them stop producing drugs now they produce more heroin than ever Mexico is like number two like cheap heroin is flooding our streets because of the pharmaceuticals that we legally allow doctors prescribe we made this problem and now we're just punishing our citizens oh yeah and it's even getting much more terrifying for everybody involved because in addition to those suppliers coming from the traditional sources there's also the chinese getting involved with the fentanyl and yeah. when the fentanyl's coming in and getting mixed in it's increasing the uh effectively it's increasing the toxicity of these things honestly yeah. like you can have like an envelope full of powder that can kill like a thousand or more people instantly like it's this is terrifying stuff and, and so when it gets mixed in one of the things that's a, a benefit of these safe injection sites is it allows drug users to shoot up in a much safer way where they can they can do it in a slower more controlled environment so they can make sure that a they're hitting a vein instead or an art what i don't know how this works it, it would be a vein intravenous there thank you uh so they're hitting a vein and they don't miss which if they miss then they can create abscesses which can lead to infections and all of this stuff gangrene and yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, what is that that movie? Um, the one that I'm thinking of that everybody sees when you're in high school, and it's terrifying. Uh, oh, with the Requ- baby on Requiem the for oh, a Dream. No, no one, yeah. that, you're thinking of Train Spotting. I, I was am. thinking of Requiem for a Dream. Th- there's a lot of good heroin movies. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Salt and Sea, also a good heroin movie. Fair enough. Um, but so when when you slow down the process that people are using to do the to do these drugs, it allows them to do a safer like testing of the drug to see whether or not it's going to cause an overdose for them. They they basically inject a little bit of it and get a feel for it and then they go with the rest of the dose. But if they're trying to do it real quick in a hurry like while nobody's looking and they're in some kind of an alley or a corner or whatever and they're worried about a cop walking down the street they're going to do it in a hurry and then if there was any fentanyl in that they're they're out. Yeah, no, there's there's uh, in Vancouver they do some purity testing um, mm-hmm. for at their safe injection site. There used to be, when I was a raver, there was a group called Dance Safe. They offered pill testing kits. Um, 
testing for the purity of drugs and for what's in a substance isn't super hard. Uh, the fact that there are so many nondescript white powders floating around the party scenes here in L.A. and all of America is really dangerous in this day and age. The government cracks down on people who make it safer to take substances. That's not going to help us here. Um, and it's it's this is just another sign of us you know, pushing people who are already on the margins farther and farther away from help. Absolutely. Uh, but we could literally talk about that all day. So that that's going to wrap up all of our legislative bills that got signed or not signed by Governor Brown. Um, some of those obviously we'll be seeing again, and some of those were really big wins. We just got a big win for criminal justice here in uh, the city of Los Angeles, well, rather the county of Los Angeles with the public defender's office. What's going on there? Well, so uh, good things. We have a new head of the public defender's office. Um, his name is Ricardo Garcia, and he'll be taking the reins of the L.A. County Public Defender's Office, which includes leading a team of 1,200 people, and 750 of them are attorneys, including... Ace Katana, and remember, the L.A. County Public Defender's Office is the largest criminal defense office in the world. And the oldest in the U.S. Well, the, the oldest uh, public defender's office oh, in the yes, U.S., yes, but yes. is the largest criminal defense office in the entire world. Oh, like, the yeah. entire world. <laughs> uh, that's... Both really cool and also slightly terrifying that we need one that's that big. We're the heart of the carceral state, so it makes a lot of sense, unfortunately. So Garcia is a lifelong public servant, and he'll be heading up to the Los Angeles County office after more than two decades as a public defender in San Diego County. He actually grew up here in Los Angeles and in Mexico City and then went to school at UC Santa Cruz and got his Juris Doctorate from Berkeley Law. Uh, During his time in San Diego, uh, he represented... Jorge Rojas in the longest trial in California history. Uh, basically, Rojas was in trial in what was widely believed to be an open and shut case as the ringleader of a series of kidnappings and murders that terrorized San Diego between 2004 and 2007 and could have easily resulted in him being uh, penalized with the death penalty. Uh, but after a 15-month trial, 15 months of trial. Garcia and his team prevailed and Rojas was found not guilty and therefore spared the death penalty. So it's always reassuring to see, you know, when the truth comes out and guys who have been convicted and are already in jail aren't just like tagged with a whole bunch of other stuff because if they didn't do it, somebody else did and you should be looking for the person who actually did it rather than just trying to pin it on somebody who is an easy scapegoat. Yeah, prosecutors living and dying by their conviction rate, not a good way to model no. a, a criminal uh, legal system. Yeah, so uh, in an alumni pro- profile interview with his alma mater at UC Santa Cruz, he demonstrated some really strong convictions about justice and comes across genuinely just sounding like a really good person. Uh, in one of the interview's anecdotes, he recounted having a prosecutor uh, back down in San Diego ask him the frankly insulting question of, quote, how do you defend people you know are guilty? His response, how do you prosecute people you know are innocent? In the interview, he then explained that his retort was more complicated than, you know, what it seems like at a base level, where he says, quote, I don't want to believe that anyone would knowingly do that, but we all know that innocent people have been convicted and some have been executed. I mean, it's nice that he's, you know, granting a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to prosecutors, but we full on know that cops have sought confessions from people they know are innocent, that prosecutors know how that game is played, that a lot of plea deals that people cop to are a matter of convenience and not justice. If you're looking at months in jail Mm -hmm. or years in jail just waiting for trial, 
yeah, you're probably going to want to get out and like figure out how to get on with your life, no matter what the cost. Oh yeah, there's that um, that little interactive tool that came out in the LA Times. Oh, that was amazing. It was horrifying. Yep. It's like, look, here's the situation. You got pulled over by a dirty cop. What are you going to do? It's a choose your own adventure where you lose. And you always lose, and you just lose worse if you try to do the right thing. Well, and also the fact that, like, the cop they're talking about, like, that dude existed in California. Hundreds of people ended up in jail for crimes they did not commit uh, because this cop lied repeatedly. Uh, But hopefully this new public defender is going to help push back on that. Yeah, so in that same interview, he uh, shared some thoughts on our criminal justice system as a whole and how it affects the people that he represents, stating that, quote, a human being is not their worst moments in their life. They are so much more than that. My clients are multidimensional individuals. The criminal justice system reduces them to their worst moments, but I get to know my clients as human beings, and it's easier to see their humanity. Yeah, and for anyone who's interested in exploring this more, uh, Ace is going to be on very shortly here in the next couple of weeks talking about all things criminal justice here in the city of L.A. So we're going to do a big deep dive on this because one of the reasons the public defenders here in Los Angeles decided to unionize was because they did not like the interim chief. The new head of the office is a much better fit and they seem to trust him more and it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, they do seem genuinely excited about this. Yeah, so let's move on to Public Bank and the L.A. Times. They published a not hit piece this week. Uh, by uh, uh, Harold Meyerson. Let's talk a little bit about what he had to say and uh, where the Charter Amendment B campaign stands at this point. Yeah, so Harold Meyerson penned an op-ed for the LA Times that was published on Wednesday morning, which is the day that we're recording this, uh, this week that makes a very strong argument in favor of Charter Amendment B. The op-ed stands in stark contrast to the condemnation of Charter Amendment B by the paper's editorial board two weeks ago. Uh, Meyerson writes, wraps up the piece pretty simply with just saying that, quote, Critics have complained that the path to establishing a city bank will be long, with many hurdles to clear. It will require legislation in Sacramento and possibly in Washington as well, and a sufficient level of capital, insurance, and collateral. But any new public enterprise is likely to encounter such obstacles. Newness has been California's stock and trade since its founding, and when accompanied by talent and judgment, innovation has produced many of the state's signature enterprises. No serious look at LA's housing supply or its small business climate would give anyone the impression that our existing megabanks are interested in making the city great again. That will require a dedicated commitment to local investment. One clear way to help that happen is to vote yes on Measure B. Yeah, I'm still very hopeful that this is going to pass. I think it's got the momentum and the juice, and it would be a really good development. Yeah, it's been getting a ton of endorsements. I mean, we we had, uh, it's it's well over 100 endorsements at this point in time. We've got, like, the L.A. County Democratic Party. We've got uh, Eric Bauman, who is the chair of the California Democratic Party. Uh, we have multiple progressive uh, Democratic clubs that have all gotten on board. We've got lots of city council members. Our revolution. Our revolution, which I mean, uh, our rev- our revolution coming on board is 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 huge. Um, I mean, I just got a text from them, uh, from the same text banking that I was just doing a couple nights ago. Uh, this is something that is huge, and this is a a, a national uh, organization that has endorsed this. We're getting attention. Uh, there's an, a speech, a, li- a Facebook Live event going on right now with Bernie talking about breaking up some of the big banks. And it's possible he might even mention something about public banking and that. I'm hopeful he will. I don't know if he will, but who knows? I mean, one way or the other, California is an innovative state, like no matter how you cut it. As much as I complain about Apple and Amazon and like these other big tech 
tech companies. They came out of the environment that existed here in California and allowed them to like grow something a, a little bit too big and unregulated, but to grow something huge. Public banking is going to let us set the tempo for the rest of the country. It's going to let us develop things. But more to the point, it's also going to bring eyes to California because, again, Los Angeles County, 10th biggest state in the nation by population, completely underserved by the number of elected representatives we have. Remember, we share two senators with one of the most populous states in the nation. Uh, there was a map that came out that showed L.A. County has the same uh, population as like six of the northern states. I mean, bigger than 40 states here. We only have two votes in the Senate. We're severely underserved. We need to think of innovative ways to make the rest of the country understand what we're doing here and why it's impactful and give ourselves a little breathing room. Because like J.P. Morgan can't J.P. Morgan Chase doesn't look at the state of California and think, how can I make you better? They look at us and think, how can I pick your pocket? Yeah, they just want to make a buck. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a pretty good wrap-up on the week, I think. It was a big, long one, so thanks for sticking yeah, with us. of course. So, as always, if you have events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.ggla.info or visit our Facebook page and send us a message. Hey, instead, instead of doing